0: If you spent any time on wiki skeptic message boards who like to point to stories in the Bible that show God to be insecure, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, intolerant, dangerous, malevolent, abusive, then you may have heard about this story in Second Kings chapter 2. That's what we're going to look at today because it's a pretty odd story. If you're reading in the King James, as many critics like to quote from, because it's free and public domain, you'll read, And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city, and mocked him, and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. Now, if you read this in a modern translation, like the NIV, it says from there, Elisha went up to Bethel as he was walking along the road. Some boys came out of town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy. They said, get out of here, baldy. Then he turned around, looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. That is not your average Sunday school story. How many of you even knew this story was in the Bible? A lot of people don't get back into the Old Testament books, certainly not the books of Kings, but it's right there. And this Bible verse has been a source of embarrassment to people for centuries, probably longer, millennia. Why would God send bears to eat 42 children innocently laughing at an old bald man? It doesn't make any sense. Is that the kind of God we serve? Is this the God of the Bible? Before we start critiquing or theologizing, a good rule of thumb is to always make sure that we actually understand what the original author of the original text actually wrote and how it would have been received by the original audience. Only then can we jump in and say, what does this mean to us today? This text is a great example of why when studying the Bible, you should never rely on just one English translation. Even the best translations aren't able to fully capture things in the original language in a way that always makes sense in modern language, especially in the modern English language, which is always changing. So translators always have to make choices in how they present the text to us and then rely on teachers who understand the text, who will then help guide people as they're seeking to interpret the text, which is what we here at Disciple Dojo strive to do. So let's look at the actual text in the Hebrew Bible. Now, Hebrew reads right, to left, so that's the first thing. So here's the Hebrew up here. I have put the words that are in question in different colors, and then down here in their English translations, I've given you the range of meanings. So what this, in a woodenly literal sense, says is two twenty three says, and he went up from there, Bethel, and he going up on the road. And here we come to these first two terms that are going to be important: young, small or insignificant, that's this word, katanim. youths, young men, boys, and that's this word, no'arim. So no'arim katanim can mean young men, it can mean young boys, it can mean small boys, it can mean insignificant men, it can mean insignificant youths, it can mean small youths. There's not a specific one-to-one correspondence between any two languages, so translators have to choose what do we think the best way to put this is. Whoever these were came out from the city, and I put in purple because there's a little bit of a wordplay here we'll talk about later. But these Naarim, Kutanim came out from the city and they, now we come to our second word, and they mocked or derided against, upon, or at him. So they did something to him, but we don't know exactly what just yet. And they said to him, and then we come to this phrase, Karea, ascend or go up, elei is a command, it means to Go upward. So it can either mean ascend or it can just mean go up or go on. And then koreak means baldy. So ascend or go up, baldy. Ascend or go up, baldy. And he turned after or behind him or he turned around. And he saw or he looked at them. You could translate either way. And then we come to this word. And he pronounced a curse against them. This verb in Hebrew, kalal, in the name of Yahweh. And two bears came from the thicket and tore up from them 42 of the... And then this last word, Yeladim, which can be translated as youths, boys, or young men. So this is what we have going on. The prophet, in this case it's Elisha or Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. As he was going up on the road, these small boys, young men, youths, came out from the city and they mocked or derided him. And they said to him, go up, Baldy, go up, Baldy. And he turned And he saw them and he pronounced a curse against them in the name of Yahweh. And two bears came out from the thicket and tore up or mauled, as we would say, 42 of the youths, young boys, young men. That's a disturbing story, no matter how you look at it. People getting mauled by bears. I mean, if you watched Grizzly Man, you know that's a pretty rough way to go. So 42 of them, that's terrible regardless of who is getting mauled by bears. However, it's important if we're going to critique the Bible, if we're going to criticize the Bible, to critique it and criticize it correctly. And in this case, I'm going to make the argument that God did not send two she-bears to maul 42 Nelsons. This wasn't a case of a crotchety old bald man. What are you kids laughing at? Get them bears. Nothing like that happened. You like my old man voice? In fact, the prophet wasn't even an old man. This is at the beginning of Elisha's ministry. Elisha's in his 20s maybe 25 at this point so if he's bald he's prematurely bald but he's not an old grumpy man so first of all get that impression out of your mind secondly These are not just a group of laughing, jolly, innocent toddlers running out and laughing at somebody like little kids are prone to do. If you've ever been around little kids, and I work with little kids, they can be pretty mean sometimes. But I'm going to suggest, and I'm going to try to demonstrate, that's not what's going on here. Take a look at this first term that's used. These Na'arim katanim. What are these small boys, small children, small youths, young men. What? Which is it? Well, let's take a look at where these terms are used elsewhere in scripture. That's always a good rule of thumb. If you come across a word that you don't know exactly how it should be treated, then see how it's used elsewhere in the Bible. So this word in Hebrew is na'ar, the first one, and in the Septuagint in the Greek, it's Piedarion is the word that the Septuagint authors use to translate it. And often, it has the meaning of young man, like really often. Take a look, in Genesis 14, 24, the word is used to describe abraham's fighting men when abraham gets back from a successful battle he says i will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me now these men are his fighting men his his hebrew samurai as we say in the podcast where we teach on this passage these are the men the the couple of hundred men that were basically retainers to abraham they were his servants they were his fighting men and they went to war with him the naar these these youth in this case are warriors. Same thing with the men of Sodom. Genesis 19 verse four, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old surrounded the house. They were all the men. So young can also mean men, as in the case of the men of Sodom. These are the ones who surrounded the house in order to abuse the angelic visitors. It's also used to describe Isaac when Abraham was gonna sacrifice his son. Now, a lot of times people have just assumed Isaac was a little boy when Abraham was told to offer him up. But that's not the case. Isaac was somewhere between 20 and 37 years old at the time. And so rabbinic tradition has Isaac being 37 years old. The phrase that's translated, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Then Abraham returned to his servants. That's the same word boy translated here is servants translated here and this is describing the boy is isaac who is actually a man when this is happening we see it in the incident at shechem when shechem seduces and then wants to marry dinah the sister of the sons of israel it says the young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with jacob's daughter Shechem was a na'ar, he was a young man when he wanted to marry Dinah after their illicit affair. So this is not about a little boy. Na'ar doesn't mean little boy every time. In Genesis 37, this is the account of Jacob's family line, Joseph, a young man of 17. So here's the phrase again, young man, he's 17 years old. And then in Genesis 41, this is the prisoners telling Pharaoh about Joseph. They say, A young Hebrew was there with us. And it uses the word again, young, na'ar. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. So Joseph, during all of his years in Pharaoh's dungeon, was a na'ar, a young man. When the Israelites get to Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, it says, Then he, Moses, sent young Israelite men. And this is what the word Na'ar. And they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. These are young men in the Israelite camp. They're old enough to sacrifice bulls that's something toddlers or adolescents aren't going to be doing. That's man's work. In Exodus 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So Joshua was a young man and naar. same thing with the spies of Jericho in Joshua chapter six. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab. Young men, they weren't little boys. Boaz asked the young man, that's what it actually this word over Overseer is young man who oversees the harvesters. Verse 2-9, he says, Watch the field where the men are harvesting. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Drink from the jars of water the men have filled. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Stay with my workers. All ways of translating this word. Men, workers, young men. When we first meet David, in fact, he's described using both of these terms. Both na'ar, which is young man, and katon, which means small and significant or younger. And so in the opening chapters of the David saga, in the book of Samuel, David is described using both of these terms. In First Samuel 16, 11, he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And he actually asked him, are these all the na'ar you have? There is still the katon, the smallest or youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. And so Samuel said, sin for well, He's talking about David. Then in the next chapter, when David's fighting Goliath, he's getting ready. Saul says, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a not our, a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth, his young manness, his not our-ness. See, in the historical books, this term not our, it can refer to what we would today call a little boy. But a lot of the times it doesn't. It refers to people that we would consider young men or young warriors. Look at these examples. 1 Samuel 21, 2, David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Chapter 21, the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Chapter 25, so he sent 10 young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. Verse 25, this is Abigail speaking. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. Verse 27, let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. And it's not just David's men, but soldiers in general are often referred to by this term, Na'ar. 1 Samuel 30, David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except four hundred young men who rode off on camels and fled. 2 Samuel 2, then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. Then Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. 2 Samuel 13, Absalom ordered his men. And then so Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Chapter 18, and 10 of Joab's armor bearers. This time it's translated as armor bearers because your notr would frequently be your armor bearer like in 1 Kings 20. But who will do this? Asked Ahab, the prophet replied. This is what the Lord says. The junior officers, as the word, Naar, under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the 232 junior, not our officers, under the provincial commanders. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. Verse 17, the junior officers. Verse 19, the junior officers. Or 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And Zadok, a brave young warrior with 22 officers from his family. Or the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. These are not what toddlers run around with. Even kings could be referred to as na'ar sometimes or would-be kings in the case of Absalom. 2 Samuel 18, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Absalom's an adult who's trying to seize the throne of his father through violent means and subterfuge. This is Game of Thrones type stuff. So this is not a little boy, yet David consistently refers to Absalom using this term of young man. 1812, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. 1829, is the young man Absalom safe? 1832, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Kushite replied... May the enemies of my Lord and the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In fact, when praying to God, King Solomon actually used both Katan and Na'ar in his prayer to God. Look what he says. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. He wasn't a little child. He was the king of Israel. And then when the country split in two after his death... Jeroboam is described this way in 1128 we read now Jeroboam was a man of standing and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph or how about the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah begins his book alas sovereign Lord I do not know how to speak I am too young, he uses that phrase, a na'ar, a young man. But the Lord said to him, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. And it's also a term used to describe the personal attendance in a king's royal court. So for instance, King Xerxes, remember him from 300? Well, he was married to Esther. And in Esther, chapter two, it says, then the king's personal attendance. That's the word, na'ar. It's translated as personal attendance here proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And then chapter six, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked, nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. And then in verse five, his attendants answered. Haman is standing in the court, bring him in the king ordered. So this word na'ar often doesn't mean little boys. Well, what about the term at the end of the story? I mean, at the end of the story, it says that the bears came out in mall 42 of the, and then it doesn't use na'ar. It uses the word which means little boy, right? Not always. The Hebrew word yelled, and, and the Septuagint uses pideon to translate it, it, it means young man or son or, or boy. It, it can have a range of meanings. Here are some of the contexts where it's used. The guy that Lamech fights and kills in Genesis chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a yelled young man for injuring me. Or again, in the Joseph saga. Remember, Joseph has already been described as a na'ar, But the text also describes him as a yell chapter 37, 30. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Chapter 42 Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They're talking about Joseph. They're talking to Joseph and don't even realize it because why? Because he's not a little boy. He's the official in Pharaoh's court, standing there in front of them who they don't even recognize. He's a man. Or after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam, who's going to take over the throne of Israel. Well, he's surrounded by these cronies, these advisors, this entourage of his boys that he grew up with. And so when he faces his first crisis as king, he makes a decision and he doesn't listen to the older men. But instead, he listens to these young bucks and they give him terrible advice, which ends up destroying the kingdom. But look how they're described. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. The young men who had grown up with him replied. Then he followed the advice of the young men. And then the parallel account in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, gave him and consulted the young men, the young men who had grown up with him. He followed the advice of the young men. It's also the term used in the book of Ruth to describe Naomi's adult sons who were married to Ruth and Orpah. Ruth chapter one, verse five, both Milan and Kilian also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And we also read about some Yeladim, some boys. You may know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the first chapter of Daniel, there's a search for young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. Verse 10, the official told Daniel, I'm afraid my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Verse 13, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men. Verse 17, these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. So both Na'ar and Yellet, both of these terms have a wide range of meaning. And both of these terms are often frequently used to describe what we would call teenagers, 20-somethings, I mean, anywhere from 13, 14, all the way up to 30-something can be described using both of these terms. This is actually one of the decisions that the NIV 2011 made that I don't agree with. I think the NIV 1984 had the better reading that preserves the ambiguity in this passage. The 2011 reads, as they were walking along the road, some boys, but the NIV 1984 reads some youths. And two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. It's always youths. So just like in so many other places in the historical books, particularly the books like Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, these young men, these insignificant youths are actually men of fighting age. Most likely. I mean, at the earliest, they would be what we call early teenagers, which in the ancient world were old enough to marry and take on the law and be considered adults. They're not the town elders, they're not seasoned men, but they're certainly not toddlers or even adolescents. These are the Na'arim, these are the young men of the town. See, in popular recountings of this story, this is what we picture. What's probably closer to what's actually happening would be something like this. Or this. These aren't just little boys out laughing and having a good time. This is a crowd of young mocking men, and we know that there's not just one or two of them because when the bears do the attacking, 42 of them are attacked. And we don't know if that means the bears actually mauled, tore apart, killed 42, or if the bears just attacked the crowd and 42 of them got injured in the process. We don't know, but... 42 is a big number. That's a significant number of young men, youths, coming out of a town that already has a history, which we'll get into in a future video, to confront a brand new young prophet, most likely around their same age, and to mock him after the events that have just happened in this story. But what did these young men actually do? Did they just laugh at him like, ha you're bald, or did they do something else? Well, their words are important. The text says that they mocked him, and it uses this word, kalas. The Septuagint uses katapaizo. It means to, to mock or deride or scorn. It doesn't just mean to laugh at. In Ezekiel 16, it says, When you built your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Scorned payment. What does that mean? Well, the theological word book of the Old Testament gives us an idea. Coloss, the root denotes the scornful belittling issuing from an attitude which counts as valueless that which is of real value. The primary meaning of this word is seen in Ezekiel 1631, where Jerusalem is compared to a whore or temple prostitute who gives herself freely despising, scorning the money. In other words, she counts the money as of no value. So it doesn't just mean to have a chuckle over somebody's bald head. That's not what's going on here. By using this term, these, these young men of the city, of this known idolatrous city, come out and they are scorning, they are mocking, they are considering Elisha as being of no value. Again, crucially important to recognize the setting in which this story happens. This is right after Elijah, his mentor, has been taken up to heaven across the Jordan. He has crossed back in. He has healed or restored the waters of the city at Jericho. And now he's going up on his way to Bethel, which is the known center of northern Israelite idolatry. And these young men come out of the city jeering him after all of this has just happened, mocking him. This is how these words are used elsewhere in Ezekiel 22. God says, therefore, I will make you an object of scorn to the nations and a laughingstock to all the countries. In other words, Jerusalem will be ruined. And so they will be a mockery. They will be a laughingstock. They will be nothing but scorn and derision in the eyes of all of the nations. Or look down in the Psalms. Psalm 44, you have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. Or Psalm 79, we are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. And the Septuagint of Jeremiah chapter 2, and the sons of Memphis and Tophnes used to mock you. So kalas doesn't mean just have a laugh at or joke around with. There's no sense of joking in this verb. This is a sense of scorn, derision, mockery. And these young men of the city are heaping this, upon the newly appointed, freshly minted, right out of miracle working young prophet, Elisha. This is how he's being encountered. These young men should have known better. Did God send bears to maul little kids for laughing at an old man's bald head? No. What actually happened, he went up from there, Bethel, and he was going up on the road and young men came out from the city and they mocked or derided him. And they said to him, go up, Baldy, go up. And he turned behind him and he saw and looked at them and he pronounced a curse against them in the name of Yahweh. This is important. He pronounced a curse against them in the name of Yahweh. It wasn't Elisha who's doing the action. He didn't even call the bears. He just pronounced a curse upon those who had just mocked, scorned, cursed him. The young men of this city should have known very well the foundational promise those who curse you I will curse to God's prophets and they should have known better but they didn't they're from an idolatrous city and an idolatrous nation at the height of its idolatry and so when they encounter a true prophet of God unlike the people of Jericho who Elisha just left they don't meet him with acceptance they meet him with scorn and with mockery and with ridicule These are the people of Bethel. Bethel was the place where God appeared to their ancestor Jacob. Bethel means house of God. Bethel was a religious center in Israel during the patriarchal and even the period under Joshua. The young men of Bethel should absolutely have known, don't mock anyone, but especially not a prophet of God. This flies in the face of every notion of ancient Near East hospitality, even modern Middle Eastern hospitality. This is not schoolyard taunting. This is utter rejection of someone, not even on religious grounds, but just on the grounds of normal rules of hospitality in an honor and shame culture. And this was at a key moment in Israel's history. The Northern Kingdom was teetering on destruction because of their ongoing rebellion and their ongoing apostasy. And now they're encountering an actual genuine prophet of God, the successor to Elijah. And this is their response. And so... In a very lex talionis type way, just as the young men came out from the city minha'ir, so two bears come out from the thicket minhayyarr. These young men come out to confront God's prophet minha'ir. God's judgment comes upon them viciously minhayyarr. And this story is a microcosm of what the prophet Hosea was speaking to Israel during this general time frame. Bethel is the religious idolatrous center of the northern kingdom of Israel. The prophet Hosea is preaching and teaching about the idolatry that has its epicenter at places like Bethel. If you want to interpret 2 Kings chapter 2 fuller in a more theological sense, read it in conjunction with Hosea chapter 13. Because this is what Hosea chapter 13 says. Hosea speaks to that same nation, to the northern kingdom of Israel, which is sometimes referred to as Ephraim. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. This is the northern kingdom that Hosea is predicting the destruction of, showing that it is the judgment that they are receiving because of breaking the covenant God made with them at Mount Sinai. We'll talk about this in a future video, I promise. But if you followed along the Disciple Dojo podcast, you should be very familiar with the Sinai covenant and the covenant curses that come from breaking the covenant, which the people of Ephraim, the people of Israel, have been doing brazenly for generations at this point. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It's said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Therefore, they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. The judgment's going to come. They're going to be no more. They're going to evaporate. They're going to blow away like smoke or like chaff. Why? Because they were doing things like human sacrifice, bowing down and worshiping golden calf idols. Jeroboam installed a golden calf idol at Bethel. It was the heart of idolatry in the Northern Kingdom. And so the young men that come out of the city to confront the prophet are the fruit of that idolatry that's been going on for generations. And it's reaching its breaking point. And the sign of Elisha, And his encounter with those young men should have been a wake-up call to that entire region. But instead, it wasn't heeded. And Hosea gives us the commentary. But I've been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me. No savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. Here's the key. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed Israel because you are against me, against your helper. Now for what helper means, go ahead and click on this video right here and listen to our very own Professor Diana at Superhero Seminary explain that. But this incident is not teaching that little boys who laugh at old bald men deserve to get mauled by bears. That's a gross caricature of this passage. You have to completely remove it, not only from its literary context. Well, first you have to translate it in a particular way, in the worst way imaginable. Then you have to remove it from its literary context. Then you have to remove it from its theological covenant context. But it was never meant to be treated that way in the first place. This passage exists in a setting, and it has a reason for using the phraseology that it uses. So is this a disturbing story? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a disturbing story. The Bible has a lot of disturbing stories. We don't need to sanitize it. The Bible is not a PG rated book. There's a lot of R rated stuff in here. This is a critical prophetic judgment against the people at a time of extreme significance. And so by our standards, if we're just talking about everyday normal life, yeah, this seems really extreme. But so does the Holy Spirit dropping someone dead for fudging the numbers on how much they gave in the offering plate. But that's what God did to Ananias and Sapphira. Or striking someone down because they accidentally touched the ark to keep it from toppling over. But that's what Uzzah found out when he transgressed the bounds of God's holiness at a key moment in Israel's history see sometimes God acts in specific ways that we find disturbing but there is theological significance to why he's acting that way and ultimately we have to do what Abraham did all the way back at the beginning when he was told what God was going to do in this first judgment account against the men of Sodom the young men included and he said to God will not the judge of all the earth do what's right see God alone is the one who has the right to perfectly judge anyone. Only God can judge in the ultimate final sense. And so we, when we come to stories like this, should they disturb us? Yeah for sure. But let's make sure they disturb us in the right way. Let's not be disturbed by something the Bible's not saying. And the Bible's not saying that God sent bears to maul little boys who laughed at an old man's bald head. The Bible's saying that the wicked people of the idolatrous center of the northern kingdom that was on its way, teetering on the brink of destruction, being sent prophet after prophet to warn them to turn back to the worship of the one true God instead of the false gods who demanded all types of sexual immorality, human sacrifice, and idolatry. They encountered a prophet of God who had just been publicly and visibly proclaimed as the successor to the prophet in all of Israel, Elijah. And their response is scorn and derision. And so they experience a premature judgment very similar to the judgment that the rest of the nation is about to experience not long after this. That's what's happening in the Elisha and the Bears story. It's not about being bald. If you're a bald youth pastor and the kids make fun of you, I know you like to trot this story out and scare them back in line. But that's not what this story is about. And we need to know that. If you're looking to critique the Bible for being barbaric and God being capricious and arbitrary and intolerant, fine, attack it all you want. But just make sure that you're not attacking a straw man. Make sure you're attacking the actual text of scripture and engage with it in a way that its own authors would accept who wrote this story and included it in there. One of my favorite old testament scholars christopher wright talks about this passage and others like it in his book old testament ethics for the people of god this is actually going to be the next disciple dojo book giveaway we just gave away a copy of the filament study bible this is going to be the next one that we do a giveaway for so pay attention if you're watching this video and subscribe follow along because in our next video we'll show you how you can enter to win this but in Old Testament ethics for the people of God. Christopher Wright notes some of the scholars like David Pechansky, who point to this story and others like it, and they reveal God as insecure, irrational, vindictive, dangerous, malevolent, and abusive. And then Wright goes on to say, there's certainly a desperate seriousness about these biblical stories and others like them. But part of the problem lies precisely in Pechansky's chosen method, which is to ask his readers, as we are told he asks his students, if all you knew about God you knew from this passage, how would you describe the divine being? But of course, this is precisely not all we know about God. There's a hugely wider canvas in the biblical canon within which these strange stories have found their place to be heard and wrestled with in the light of everything else we know. None is easy to handle. But to isolate them and then attempt to describe the character of God exclusively on the basis of these narratives seems a very odd approach to the scriptures. It is an odd approach. It's a disingenuous approach. It's like pointing to the use of the N-word in Huckleberry Finn as evidence that Mark Twain was a raging racist. When in fact, if you read Huck Finn, Mark Twain is actually undermining the entire concept of slavery throughout the book. But if you just grab a passage, a conversation between Huck and Jim on the raft, you're gonna come away thinking this guy belongs in the clan. So we have to read whether it's modern literature like Mark Twain or whether it's ancient literature like the book of Second Kings. We have to read the text in its full context. We have to see the overall message What the author is trying to communicate and what the meta narrative that that book finds its place in is teaching about God himself. And when we do that, it doesn't clear up. It doesn't make all the Bible stories nice and happy. It doesn't turn them all into children's stories, but it's not supposed to. What it does do is it gives us a fuller picture of this God, including these acts of judgment that when we just read them in isolation, they seem really shocking. There's a reason for them. When we look at this passage in its context, it's pretty fascinating. And when we see all the connections that are being made within it and what it was intended to speak to Israel, then we can get a better idea of what it's intending to say to us today. But first, we have to get the story itself correct. And that begins with noting these translation ambiguities. But that's all for today. Thanks for watching and stay tuned.